right. So the, uh, the, the parable here that, we're, that was in our gospel reading, as you can see by the graphic behind me, is the parable of the shrewd steward, uh, could be unrighteous steward, could be dishonest steward. Um, it gets a lot of titles, and that's because nobody really knows what to do with it. If you were to poll like New Testament scholars, not pastors, but scholars with like academic credentials, um, and ask them which is the most difficult of Jesus' parables, two would float to the top. This one in Luke 16 and the parable in Luke 19. We don't really 100% know what to do with it. So I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, as it turns out, there's some, some other research floating around and, uh, that I think can help. And when I was doing my THM a couple years ago, this actually made a special appearance in, in my thesis because I think it's, it's a little more prescient, a little more contemporary than we might think. Uh, but in order to do that, we're actually going to go back through it, um, not quite line by line, but section by section. So if, and I apologize to Tatum, I sprung this on him at the last minute and said, oh yeah, we're going to do this thing that we don't normally do. So yeah, Luke 16, so if we can go to the first section. So Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. All right. That tells us a couple of things uh, already about what's going on in Jesus' mind. Um, if you are wealthy, you are not wealthy because you have uh, a bunch of liquid assets. Uh, you are wealthy in first century Judea if you have land. Land is where the money's at, so to speak. And if you have enough land that you actually have to have a manager to kind of take care of everything, to manage your portfolio, you are very, very wealthy. And that land uh, would most likely, or almost certainly really, be occupied by tenant farmers. And they would grow whatever crops that land is particularly suitable for. And the tenant farmers... Uh, for their rent, they don't pay money, they owe a certain amount of what that land produces. So if the land produces grapes for wine, you would, if you're a tenant farmer, you would owe the landowner a certain amount of wine. If you grew olives, you would owe a certain amount of oil. If you grew barley, you would owe a certain amount of barley. And the, the landowner would have a pretty good idea of what that land could likely produce. All right, uh, so he calls him to account, uh, says, hey, I hear terrible things about you. Turn in your ledger, so to speak. If we could go to the next slide, please. Um, because you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. As somebody who uh, likewise has lost his job, although not because I was like, you know, cooking the books or anything like that. I don't even know how to do that. Um, but for, for just unfortunate, like that's just how things worked out. It's a really scary prospect. 
especially in the first century. Like, safety nets are are different there. They're community-based. And he probably lives on land, and therefore in the community, that is kind of owned and operated by this landowner. So he's trying to figure out what to do. Um, Next slide, please. So I know what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. So that land, in Jesus' kind of imagination, um, produces, or, or, or is occupied by olive trees, most likely. A hundred measures of oil. That's a lot of oil, by the way. Uh, he, next slide please, said to him, take your bill and sit down and write 50. That's a, that's a hefty discount. Uh, then he said to another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Okay, so what's going on here? Most likely the amount that these farmers owe or these tenants owe um, the landowner is that rent that we were talking about earlier. Um, so they, the assumption would be, you know, if it produces 100 measures of oil, uh, or not 100 measures, but the land must produce enough so that he could uh, give the landowner 100 measures of oil while having enough to make it worth, or why, worth his while, sell off what he has or barter it for the things that he needs. Does that make sense? We tracking so far? More or less? Okay. Um, so the guy comes in and says, all right, what's your rent, basically? Okay, yeah, cut it in half. All right, yeah, your rent. All right, cut it by uh, 20%. So this is where things in our, uh, in our parable for us with modern ears fall apart. Because the manager, or the master rather, uh, commends this guy. And we're stuck saying, why? He just cheated you out of a bunch of money. Well, as it turns out, in the broader Greco-Roman world in the first century, this was a known practice. Um, One uh, commentator or scholar uh, in particular calls it voluntary debt reduction, which is kind of like a fancy pants way of saying rent discount or something like that. Um, And uh, we actually have some Greco-Roman writers who talk about this, that if you own land and you have tenant farmers, every once in a while, cut them a break. Say, you know, cut cut them a, a little bit of a break in terms of what they owe. And this will do a couple of things. One, it strengthens the relationship between landowner and tenant farmer. Because I don't know about you, but if somebody said, hey, you owe less on your rent or your mortgage this month, I'm going to like that. You may be different. Uh, So it makes him look good. It also eases things for the tenant farmer because uh, agriculture in the ancient world was pretty risky. We, they didn't have a whole, as quite the, the irrigation and fertilizer technology, the technology that we do today. And so it was not uncommon to have a bad crop. And if, say, you owe 100 measures of oil 
to your landlord, but the crop was bad, and so you only produced 110 measures of oil, you have a big problem. You're not going to have enough to make ends meet. There's a chance that you're going to go into debt just trying to take care of your family. So it acts as like a pressure release valve. And so uh, it strengthens that relationship. Then as the landlord, you don't have to like kick the tenant out and find somebody else. Basically, with this writing off of debt, everybody wins. Which is why the landowner is pretty keen on what this manager did. Because think about it from the landlord's perspective. He looks good. His tenants are happy. Happy tenants are productive tenants. While at the same time, this soon-to-be former manager uh, has made some friends. Everybody just won here. This is a good situation. So the master commends the dishonest, and that actually could just be unrighteous. It's adikaios. Uh, it's the same word as uh, um, unrighteous. So if we go to the next line, or the next slide, rather. He commends him for his shrewdness. And then here's again where the parable starts to fall apart. Uh, for this, Jesus says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when they may see, receive you, and I'll just tell you what he says. Um, actually, I forget what he says. Go to the next uh, slide. Um, if then you have, oh well, yeah, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Okay. This is where things get really confusing because Jesus is saying, okay, the sons of this world, which who are they, are more shrewd than the sons of light. Sons of this world would undoubtedly be like non-Israel, people who are not followers of God, like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The sons of light would be those who are. So why is Jesus, excuse me, Jesus sort of blasting his own people while praising the Gentiles, essentially, the people who aren't us, the people who go off and worship all kinds of idols and other gods. Well, as it turns out, as far as we know, the practice of this whole like debt relief, uh, debt remission kind of thing, didn't really happen in Judea. It was not a Jewish phenomenon, and it should have been. In fact, uh, the uh, prophets and in the law and Torah are very, very clear about dealing with generosity towards those who are poor or down and out. And in fact, if you notice during the Old Testament reading from Amos, the prophet is very, very clear that God does not smile upon those who oppress the poor economically. And in fact, it's, the situation is actually even worse. 
Uh, we know that at, during the life of Jesus, that a debt crisis was forming. It actually started when he was roughly a te- by the time he was a teenager. That uh, cycles of inescapable debt were starting to work their way into Judea especially. That people with means figured out how to use predatory loans to rip off small-time or poor landowners and then seize their lands. In other words, how to use foreclosure as a weapon. Because some things never, ever, ever change. And by doing this, the rich got a whole lot richer and the poor got even poorer. So you'd have situations where people who used to own land would then actually have to now rent that land from somebody else because they swooped in and grabbed it after a bad crop. This was happening in front of Jesus. And we know historically that that becomes a major contributing factor for just the the collapse of Jerusalem and Judea a generation later, which Jesus sees coming and prophesies about. Which means Jesus is saying when he says, because the sons of this world, so like everybody else, they're better at dealing with their people financially than we are. Those of us who should know better. This is a very ominous parable. It's full of what we in Lutheran circles would call the law. Because Jesus is prophetically speaking to a group of people who are not using the resources that God has given them in ways that contribute to human flourishing and are instead using their wealth to become greedier and greedier and prey on those who have very little. See, this has nothing to do with the modern era, right? Ah. And so on the one hand, this becomes a significant warning that it matters what we do with our money and the other resources that God has given us. Uh, And by virtue of the fact that you live in the United States um, in 2022 means that we are some of the wealthiest people that have ever lived. And it matters what we do with our money. So it might be just first off worth asking, do I use my money in a way that contributes to human flourishing as God would want it. Now, that doesn't mean like, is it bad that I just went and got a burger or something like that? Or, well, I got kind of a nice car because it's comfortable and I spent a lot of time in it, which that's an example. I did not. Um, no, that, that's, that's fine. This is much bigger picture. And then another question worth asking is how can I use what God has given me to contribute to human flourishing as God would define it? Where are there needs that potentially I could meet? How can I give to organizations, 
for example, that really meet people where they are at, that are ministering to people in dark places, people who have very little. Like our own God Cares About You, which, uh, I, again, I encourage you, spend some time down there if you can. Your eyes will be opened. But the fact that it, it matters what we do with what God has given us is not really where this parable um, ends. I mean, Jesus gives some other advice about you know, being trustworthy in little things, and then if you are, then you can be trusted with more, and, and you know, the inverse is also true. Um, but that's only part of the story. If, if, if the story kind of ended here, we would look at Jesus as sort of a, a very wise, prophetic voice who's kind of moralizing and going around and giving good advice. And as I said a couple weeks ago, you don't kill somebody who goes around and gives people advice. But the fact that we are in Luke chapter 16 means that, that the clock is running out. Jesus knows very well that his time is almost up. And the Apostle Paul, follower of Jesus, um, who comes a little bit later, will actually write about Jesus that he had everything to the extent that, that he had equality with God. And he did not use that equality with God for his own purposes, but he emptied himself for the sake of everybody else. Which means that Jesus is, is telling this parable, trying desperately to, to wake his people up and say it matters what we do with our money, it matters where we invest it, it matters how we use it. But he is also the one who has been given everything and is willing to give it up. That divine generosity is not just giving resources, but it is giving self. That God gives his own son to bring us into the kingdom, to invite us into a way of rethinking what it means to be generous, to recognize that everything God has given us is a gift redeemed by the blood of his own son. And that we who now live on the other side of resurrection life as new creation breaks in, as we walk in forgiveness, as we recognize where we have not dealt generously or wisely with the things that God has given us, that we are continually invited into this new way. Forgiven, redeemed people of God. Amen. Amen.